Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Contractor Evolution. This is your host, Benji. My two guests on the show today, we're super lucky, are Tommy Mello and Al Levy. Tommy's a friend of ours, a friend of the show he's been on before, but for our newer listeners, a quick recap. Tommy's company, A1 Garage Door Service, now operates in 37 markets across 19 states. They're currently on pace to do north of $200 million in revenue this year. But get this, they do that with an EBITDA of 17%. Al Levy is the author of The Seven Power Contractor and one of Tommy's most trusted mentors. He helped Tommy develop the SOPs, create the org chart, write the operations manuals, and define the vision for what A1 has become. Together, they're hosting an event in Orlando called Freedom on November 1st, and it goes to the 3rd. You should check out the lineup of speakers. I've got it linked in the description. It's pretty stacked, and there's a 40% discount code for our Contractor Evolution listeners. It's BTA40. In today's conversation, though, we talk about a few things. We get into Tommy's new book called Elevate, Build a Business Where Everyone Wins. Al shares his perspective on Tommy's long and arduous journey to success from near broke, living in a small apartment in Phoenix and writing payroll checks out of his personal account to where he is today. And then lastly, we also talk about A1's geographic expansion strategy. Really, really interesting how they analyze and select markets and then the roll-up process when they decide to green light one. So without further ado, let's dive in with Tommy and Al. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Tommy and Al, good to see you guys. Welcome back to Contractor Evolution. How are you? Doing great. Thank you for inviting us along. It's a beautiful day here in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> yes. Al, I want to start with you because our, our audience is uh, somewhat familiar with Tommy already. We've had him on the show. We've had him to our events. Um, you know, I think a lot of our listeners will be will, be, will recognize your name and Seven Power and, and, and all the stuff you do. But can you just very briefly give us kind of a backstory on you and then, and then your relationship with Tommy as well? Yeah. So I, I come from a uh, family plumbing, heating, cooling, electrical business. We were a New York City Union shop, so think about that for a sec. And uh, we uh, started in 1936 out of my grandfather's gas station. My dad, my uncle came home from the war, got busy, uh, both in business and making kids. And then my brothers and I uh, showed up full time, and then we were third generation there. And here's the good news. I left my business 20 years ago to do consulting like I did with Tommy. Um, and then right now, my nephew is the fourth generation, and my brother, my middle brother is still there. So I learned a lot of stuff. I was making a ton of money, but as I always speak to, it was I was 50 pounds heavier than you see me today. Mm. So to say I was eating my stress would be an understatement. And finally, I learned that if I didn't put systems in place, nothing was ever going to change. And that was the great book, Michael Gerber's E-Myth, that told me because I was always working in the business and never on it, nothing would change. And so when I left 20 years ago, and they were in great shape because I gave them Three years notice, my brothers and my dad, three, did, just so you guys hear that, three years notice. So uh, went off, did a lot of consulting. And then uh, one day, Tommy just calls because we're going to do one of his very first podcasts in 2017. And I looked down at my phone and I go, hey, Tommy, I see a number here that's the same area code as I am in Arizona. 
He goes, great, we'll have lunch afterwards. We go to lunch, start talking. Tommy looks at me at lunch and goes, you're hired. And I said, I, I didn't know I was on a job interview. But then we worked together. You know, at the time, Tommy was 15 million already. So he knew how to make calls. Problem was he was losing money, as Tommy will admit. And uh, he was in the process of growing. It was pretty chaotic. And all of the magic was Tommy. And when Tommy couldn't keep it all together, then, you know, they were free to do what they wanted to do. And they were running the place, not Tommy. So we got to 15 million, breaking even. 15 million, making a lot of money. And then Tommy one day looks at me and goes, you know, well, I think this is going to be a $100 million company. And I will tell you, I never ran on anybody's dream. Mm. But I went home and told my wife, Natalie, I said, he is going to be a $100 million company. And as soon as we got close to that, Tommy was already, I'm sorry, we're going to be a billion-dollar company. And don't bet against Tommy. What kind of stuff did he hire you to work on? I mean, I, I'm sure you could spend, you know, four hours just describing the ins and outs of, of it. But at a high level, what were what were some of the specific systems? What was the infrastructure that was missing that you guys worked on together? Let me just tell you guys one quick thing, and I'll let him answer that question. Al said, before I work with you, let's just let's just look at the the building. Let's look at your operation. And he walks through trips on a cord. There's calendars on the wall. He said, haven't you ever heard of Outlook or Google Calendar? He goes, where are your manuals? Then he walks in the back and says, Tommy, I could have stole your whole warehouse with your own forklift. The garage was open. Nobody's back there. He, he says, show me your systems. Show me your project board. Show me your org chart. And I handed him some stuff that was really old and it was not good. And he said, we got a lot of work to do. That's the initial meeting after the podcast and the lunch. And then he could tell you what we worked on. Yeah, the first thing we had to do is get a plan in place. Uh, and for the listeners out there, let me ask you a question. Do you need another great idea or do you need an idea implemented? And that's really the problem. And I faced that problem myself, so I'm not passing judgment. Especially in those days, you know, I used to go to events and things of that nature, read a trade magazine. Well, today you have 5 billion ideas grabbing your attention between podcasts and Facebook groups and all these other networking events to go to. So your problem is even worse. But if, until you get organized with the structure, which is what I call planning power, that's where we created a master project list, which is the top of the funnel. Then we work our way down to what we call the top 30, which is fixes the greatest problem or challenge, greatest chance to grow and be profitable. And that's what we'd hope to do in a year. But if you know Tommy, it's a lot faster than that. And then it's down to your top five, which is where the work goes on every week. And if you're a smaller contractor, even if you're a bigger contractor, if you do not work on your top five that you picked that say that you will fix the biggest problem or challenge or greatest chance to grow profitable, tell me, what were you doing this week? Mm. That's more important. I'll help you out. Nothing, nothing is more important than spending some time working on your top five. And that's what Tommy killed in the best way possible. Mm. So you've been working on kind of the guts, uh, the operational systems, the infrastructure at A1 for the last, what, so I think you said seven years, uh, just a second ago? Like you, you guys yeah, been no, Tommy, you know, my work was designed to be done in usually three years. Mm. Tommy pretty much breezed through a lot of that, but because he was so much on the expansion, I did planning power, then I did operating power, which is the org charts, the manuals that Tommy speaks to. And then... Tommy was a hostage to his employees, uh -huh, just like me and every other contractor. And I said, the way I got free, Tommy, is 
It took young, willing apprentices with no skills to willing techs with great skills, as many as I want in any location, because I too was one main hub and three spokes. Tommy, obviously in 19 states, big difference. But the point of it is he got onto the staffing train. And then we talked about marketing and formalized. Now, Tommy is a phenomenal marketer. My goal was to make it systematic. Everything that I do was is all about creating systems so that good people can become great and great people can leverage. So you've had, and go ahead, Tommy. Let me just tell you guys, if I give you guys in a nutshell, what Al taught me, and this is just coming from memory. We started out with just brainstorming and getting what manuals, and he calls it the triangle of communication. You start with dispatcher, CSR, tech and installer. He wrote along with about five technicians that he said, every single guy does every single thing different. So we need to create standard operating procedures. Then he said, I'm going to work on your org chart and you're going to fit you're going to build boxes and people are going to fit in those boxes. Then you're going to build your training center. We're going to teach you how to build technicians from scratch. And then he taught me how to delegate. And by the time we were through about a couple of years, we had 40 manuals and we had pay for performance figured out. And we had even the operational excellence of how you're building structured of how it has to be hard to get to the COO, the CFO and me. So, and then he worked on inventory and basically Really what Al is, is a systems guy. He's a manual guy, standard operating procedure. He's the systems dictate the output instead of getting lucky. And he calls it lightning in a bottle. Don't look for this great hire. Look for people that could follow the great systems. And I always had to be the guy in the firefight to go fix things because I said, everybody's dumb around me. I got to fix <laughs> this myself. And Al said, well, what's the system that they follow every time to prevent that? And he goes, Tommy, when we're done here, everything will be vanilla. It'll be boring because it'll just be a printing machine of money. And you won't have to be involved because everybody will have an order of operations. And he was right. And we filed the manual, read the manuals. You know, we got Halloween coming up. And the one thing we pull out of the manuals, we read all three pages is how you ask for time off because everybody takes time off during Christmas and Halloween. We got our tattoo policies. If your truck breaks down, our manuals are 60 to 70 pages per for installers. Then we've got our install manual, which is another 100 pages of how to do things the A1 way. And then we train on those things. And Al's taught us, you don't just hire people. You hire them, you train, you, you, you orient them. And I do all my own orientations based on Al's teachings. And then you, you train them and then you got to retain them and you never stop training. And we just took his stuff and got really, really good at it. And that was the foundation of ex exponential growth. We also worked on his model trucks because the oh, trucks yeah. were all over the place. And then he got me Dan Antonelli. He said, your trucks look like shit. No offense. I'm not yeah. impressed. He said, take a picture of your truck black I am and from white. New York. You know I wouldn't use a curse word like no, that. No, never. And so he he introduced me to Dan. I rebranded. I mean, Al just yeah. – he brought in – I mean, Al was part of Nexstar when it first started. He He's taken everything good out of every single company and then added – a bazillion to it, and then he teaches it. And he put a lot of that in the seven power contractor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That kind of brings us to, uh, I mean, we're skipping a few steps, but it brings us uh, up to where we are now. Tommy, I wanted to uh, say congratulations on the new book and ask you a few questions about it. Wh what? So yeah, hold it up there. It's called Elevate. What's the, I mean, you're a busy guy. So let me ask you this. Why do you feel it was important to write? I mean, you got to carve out hours to put this together. You got to edit. You got to brand. You got to publish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's some reason that you felt this is important to kind of package up some of your wisdom into those pages and get it out into the world. Tell us about that. So 
it's interesting. When I met Al at that lunch, I handed him the Home Service Millionaire, and he flipped through it, and he goes, this is crap. He goes, this needs to be rewritten. <laughs> and he goes, you need to really, I should probably be in the book because I know I've taught you a lot. Well, he didn't teach me a lot at that point, but he goes, you need to get experts. So I got 12 co-authors, rewrote the whole book. And ever since I wrote that book, I was like, I created a Google Doc. And every time I learned something, I'd put in a paragraph. And I mean, I had hundreds of pages. And then I decided I really don't have a process to build a book. So I flew out to Nashville and we brainstormed for three week, three days and we built five pillars. But the reason why I wrote Elevate is during COVID, I had employees walk into my office and I thought they were going to all quit and demand more. And the first guy walked in and said, my wife makes a lot of money. I want you to cut my pay in half. This is before we knew about PPP money. The next employee walked in and said, I want to see this company do good. I've got all my sick time. I'm going to give it up for people that need it more. And this continued to happen. And I said, who am I to deserve this? Why does this company give so much? I won't say I was greedy, but I never wanted to give back as much as I received. And so it changed my mindset is how do I let my coworkers win in a bigger way? And then this mentality change of how do I let my vendors win? I don't want to just get them down to the lowest price and not have them robust growing and getting the technology they need to innovate. And then I said, how do I let my customers win? And I got to win. And, you know, we're buying a lot of companies and I need those owners and employees to win. And in business, I was always taught, I played every sport you could think of. There needs to be a winner and a loser. And my mentality, build a business where everybody wins is, you don't have to have your competitors lose. You don't have to have the customer lose. I've always always trained, I'm winning, you're going to lose. And so the whole mindset of the Elevate Foundation is find out their three-year goals. Find out their dreams. Each and every company you work with, each and every employee, what is their bucket list? What do they want out of life? What do they want to do with their kids? What, what house do they want to buy? And that just led to a whole different mindset. And, um, you know, at the core – and the book, we came up with five pillars, and Al's in the book. My buddy Jody's in the book. And a guy that Al worked intimately with is Brian to build the manuals and scorecards. Brian wrote a section of the book. So it's leadership, culture, marketing, recruiting, and systems. But that's the philosophy behind the book. And the people that read the book, and I've been getting it, just came out on Audible. They said it flows so good. The majority of the people listen to it at one sitting, and they said it just read really well, and there's tactics and systems to implement. And that's the core foundation of the Elevate mindset. I do want to make one correction. You know, when we sat at lunch and he handed me his first book, I did not say it was crap. <laughs> what I said was it's a bad ransom note because it has no structure at all. And so that was bad. The other thing I will share is that Tommy and I are alike in this thing. We have both suffered and struggled as contractors. And we both know that if not for great mentors, we would still be struggling. And so Tommy, like myself, fervently believe that if you've been given a gift, you have an obligation to help others. Now, they have to help themselves. And we're there to help you, but you got to put your hand up and want to be helped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Al had, a, Al had a rule that my cell phone had to be off. And he said, Tommy, if we're going to work together, promise me you're going to have to slow down your reading because you come up with 10 new ideas a day and you read the fastest I've ever seen. So before you go coming with new ideas, can we first implement my ideas? 
So I made a commitment to him to say, I will see this through. And the, my coworkers, which were Adam and Brian, will be involved and we'll get everything done. And so it turned off our cell phones. We sat there and we worked on the business all day. He'd drive into the shop and we would work at the conference table day on day for months, years, until we had a, a really solid foundation. And the systems dictate the output. It did become vanilla. And every time the business becomes vanilla, I exponentially grow. Then I got to catch back up because I kind of overwhelmed myself. And then I got to redo the systems because what got me here is not going to get me to the next level. the next level. And a lot of it now is technology mm -hmm. and being able to take Al's lessons and add some great technology that actually could spit out the KPIs and scorecards instead of getting them a week later because of a pivot table. You know, that's some of the things we've embraced. And when Al taught me, he was using Dropbox, which was great, but there's other things now that I use. He uses Trello boards. We use that for a long time. Now we use Monday, but he made me focus. And if, if you were going to ask him a weakness, I think it would be Tommy's all over the place. He's got ADHD. He's always on his phone. So I needed him to calm down and do the work and not stop thinking of new ideas. I don't know if that's what you would have said. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, that was part of the challenge, but I have faced that challenge for 20 years long before I walked in to see Tommy. Now, Tommy was, I could tell, entrepreneurial but he was being bombarded and pulled in a thousand directions. So again, creating that master project list, top 30, top five, critical for anyone, but especially for Tommy. And so he, in a very small portion of his team, we went to work. That, that's really the goal. And so what I talk about in planning power is working on the right thing in the right way at the right time. Because it's easy to go get a thousand things started and your staff goes, oh, did he go to another event? Did he read another book? Why are we being subjected to this? Because you said yesterday, this is the number one priority. And today you go, excuse me, I know I said that yesterday. Today, this is the number one mm. priority. You want to take the heart out of your staff? Keep doing that. Yeah. I, I, I've been, uh, I'm very bullish on this whole idea and I have a bit of a mantra. I say this a lot with our team. I say this a lot with our members and when we do stuff like this, which is ideas are the easy part. And implementation is everything. Everyone loves their, everyone has ideas. Everyone loves their ideas. They think they're the greatest ideas. That's the easy part. The, the very, very difficult part is picking the right ones, the disciplined implementation, execution. Uh, nothing happens inside your head except kind of chaos and confusion. So I, I'm a totally aligned with this, this type of thinking. One of the things, and you mentioned this a second ago, Tommy, uh, one of the things in the book that I really wanted to zoom in on, and by the way, guys, like go download it if you haven't already. Uh, it is a quick read. Uh, I can do it. I, I got it on Kindle. You can, I think it's you, Tommy said it's on Audible here very shortly. So um, it is. It's quite broad. We're not going to have time to cover all five of those pillars. So what I did is I kind of went through it and I scanned. I said, okay, I really want to ask them about these kind of three or four things. We're not going to cover it all, but we want to zoom in on this one thing, which is scorecard development. One of the things that I think that you are uniquely expert at, and I would say maybe this is a superpower at A1 or it's something that you've clearly invested in, is, de is developing scorecards for divisions, for individual roles. There's certain KPIs that people are graded against. The measurement is really tight. Uh, you've, you've obviously tacked on performance pay on top of that. I want you to talk about the development of the scorecards in A1. Let's first start off uh, like with a simple question. Why did you build them? Why are they so critical? And I'll ask some follow-up questions in a second. Well, when Al started with me, and Al was a big piece of getting this foundation, but 
he said, you you got to be able to explain to your significant other how you get paid. And when you look at a lot of people's pay, it's like the quadratic formula. <laughs> or they're hourly. And hourly people, in my opinion, don't have the same cause. They're not rowing in the same direction. They're not focused on what helps the business owner win. And they're limited at their growth. They could cap out at 60 grand when a performance pay, you have unlimited potential and you got skin in the game. So we had to make it five factors or less. And I hate the word commission. Commission to me sounds like somebody might do something not very ethical at the end of the month to make payroll, to make their rent. And Al basically has taught me all this stuff. And I just became a really big fan of performance pay in every department. And the scorecards affect the performance pay, which inevitably even affects the price book because the price book works directly with the compensation program, which works directly with the scorecards. They're all three correlated. So I, I think I just said, listen, what are the things that matter the most? Obviously, reviews matter. Uh, recall rates matter. Uh, ticket average is a huge one because we've got to have sales. Conversion rate's a big one. And for us, service to sales is a big one because we want to sell new equipment. We learned that in the HVAC industry. Yeah. Is why, what would you do for your mom? Would you really be fixing this old door or would you be replacing it? And that's kind of what we live by. Our competitive advantage is we really do what's right for the client. And it's not the biggest sale, but we give six options to everybody. And so, you know, it's performance pay started with the technicians and then it went to installers and then it went to CSRs. And the latest one was dispatchers. And that's a more difficult one. And every manager is on a compensation program. And usually it evolves off gross profit because they can't affect EBITDA if I decide to go spend a bunch of money on stuff. Sure. And that's kind of the direct labor that's involved in that job is what you could base it off of. And our, our management makes six figures and then they get a hundred percent bonus and it's quarterly and very few of them hit the hundred percent, but they'll make 70% plus and they got skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And then we did the equity incentive program and a lot of people earned equity in the company. And we went from 12 million of EBITDA to 27 million of EBITDA in one year when everybody started rowing and communicating and getting unsiloed. Mm. I know that's a long answer and probably isn't. Well, let's let's click in on a couple of these it. things. This might seem kind of granular, but like I think our listeners would be interested. Like, what is the scorecard for a tech? What's the scorecard for an installer? What's the scorecard for a CSR? Like, what are the actual KPIs that you've designed, and how, and how did you come to those conclusions? Yeah, so it's interesting. We, one of the things that Hal taught us again is don't screw with people's pay. And I'll tell you the foundation of how you come up with a scorecard is you should have data for the last ninety days. So you build an Excel sheet. You need somebody pretty good at Excel. And you say, what are the things this one role can affect? They got to be able to affect the outcome. Like CSRs can't affect how much money that they get on the ticket. Dispatchers can by dispatching the right tech, the right job at the right time. So what can they affect? And usually it's five or less things. And then you literally build on previous data, how the company makes more money and how the tech makes more money. And so we said, recall rates are killing us because it's $200 a burdened cost to run a truck. So we added recall and warranty rates. And then we said, what's the most important thing is a pleasant experience of a customer that'll use us over and over again. So reviews matter. So we look at the average review. And then we looked at conversion rate. We don't make money if it's not converted. And we look at that for service and or sales. And the big one is average ticket is when we go out there, I'd rather have Conversion rate's more important than average ticket because I'd rather make every customer that called us 
a, a raving fan. And so we took the last three months of data and we picked one technician and we said, we're going to pay you your normal compensation or the score or, or the scorecard of this new performance pay. And we failed. We made a lot of mistakes. We're like, shoot, he made way too much money. We screwed this up. So we went back. We said, we got to adjust this. And we said that going up front. Thank God we didn't roll it out to everybody. Then we rolled it out to five guys once we nailed it. And as the company evolved, we said, wait a minute, there's something way more important now. Now we're selling storage or now we're selling way more doors. So I say every six months, we change the scorecard to something. Right now, part of our scorecard is how much did you pre-finance? Get the customer approved for our promotions. Mm -hmm. Because the average ticket is 40% higher and the conversion rate is 27% higher. So that had to be a factor. But we pulled one out. So we have never have more than five. And we're trying to build specific behaviors. And the top sales guy is not the top scale scorecard, unlike what most people would think. And so now you got to be an all-around great tech because I've had really great producers that were poison and they had recalls and they were trouble for the dispatchers and they were prima donnas and they didn't want to work but three days a week. So we didn't let the sales dictate that that was being a slave. Mm. So that was the technician. Installers are based on sold hours. So we said, how long does it take an average installer to install this door? Now, if they could upsell and if they don't get recalls, we, we'll give you a good installer could do it in an hour. An average installer could do it in three hours. We're paying you on that three hours. There's trim added. We're going to pay you an extra hour. And so those are sold hours like a mechanic gets paid. They look up in the Kelly Blue Book. This takes six hours. That's how you – That's how. You, but that's how I charge, mm -hmm. right? So now I charge. My price book is built around the performance pay. So if you take five hours, you're not going to make as much money. If you get it done faster, you're more efficient, but you better not have a recall. And that's why we have checklists to make sure we've got a data integrity team to make sure everything was done perfect. We even get a video of the door running. We get all the pictures of the failure points and make sure that that's been gone over. Our warranty calls, number one thing is safety. So we make sure that got mentioned on the call to the client. And then um, CSRs, what's the most important thing? Booking rate. And then empathy. So we've got AI to tell the empathy on the phone. And then data accuracy. If they put street instead of avenue, my guy went an hour in the wrong direction. Mm. And obviously their booking rate, the percentage, the higher that is, the more they're going to make. So they're excited. We During COVID, we went and we put 60 agents all working from home. Now that's hard because you don't get the culture because they don't come in. It's hard to have meetings. But in this day and age, what we realized is how do we make them hungry to answer the phone when they're at home? And secondly, what I would say is the technology suite that we have allows us to do that. And what's great is we're in every single time zone. It's hard to hire great CSRs in Phoenix, mm -hmm. but you go to Detroit, you go to Wisconsin, you could hire great people and it's a great hourly rate. And so one of the things we do with our CSRs is we say, you're going to make $15 an hour or your bonus structure, not and your bonus structure. So what's cool about that is if you're making $50 an hour, that means you're on the lowest end of the totem pole. You better get better because we've got agents making $30 an hour. Then that becomes a recruiting tool. My average technician makes over 90 grand their first year. Wow. So, and they earn that. And the greatest thing about performance pay and scorecards is I get excited when they make a lot of money. I used to get mad if a guy made 200 grand. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, damn, you made more than me. Now I'm like, holy crap, I want this guy to make 400 grand. Yeah. And 
if they make 400 grand, I'm rejoicing because I know the company won. And that's hard to do. And trust me, it takes smart people that understand numbers to build the pivot tables out because I can't do it, but I have great people that help me put these together. I was going to ask, like, what, like, it seems so, like, with the idea of aligning the incentives of the individual with the incentives of the whole organization seems so obvious. Uh, you know, a 10 year old kid could get it. But you, when you actually observe the broader market, the vast, vast majority of small businesses in these blue collar businesses, are doing hourly and they might have some half-baked bonus structure that's really not super sophisticated and not particularly well tracked and then you end up at December and the employee says well I hit these goals and the uh, and the boss says well I actually think you're a little bit less and you get to this awkward negotiation they settle somewhere in the middle and then they're often it's not very good is the average why don't more, like why aren't more people doing this is it just cuz it's hard let me uh, let me just share just a second here is you know cuz pay is something that I I worked with a uh, great co-consultant, Ellen Rohr, who is a financial, actually worked with Tommy as well. First thing first is you need to do a budget to know what Tommy's truck needs to bring me. Because if he doesn't do that, it doesn't matter how I pay him for this week or this day, it's got to be the overall picture. So what most people don't know is whose rewards are you giving them? The money they created or money out of your pocket? And for having done this so long, the shame of it really is Owners literally will take money away from their family to pay a bonus, and that's not right. So you need to define is, what is it I need you to bring me? If you bring that, I love you. Keep coming to work. If you bring me $1 more than I was expecting, I'll reward you with that. If it's $1 less, I'll coach you, but not forever. And that's the essence of it. Then the three ways to pay is hourly salary. And coming from a union shop, I can tell you that's pretty horrible. Mm -hmm. You. You pay for no good reason, and you hope that they'll hustle. So we created a pay scale and then a bonus for going above that's objective for KPIs, just like Tommy had. And that worked really well. And then, of course, today, performance pay is basically taking that to the next level. The thing that I was sharing with him, as Ellen was very clear, is you need to do shadow of how they get paid today and how they would have got paid on the new system so that they understand, because otherwise they think, oh, I was making money. Now you're taking it away from me. And that's a very dangerous spot to be. Well, when I started performance pay in the call center, I actually, the, the, the CSRs ended up making less the first two weeks. And then within a month, my booking rate went through the roof and they were making a lot of money, but we were making way more money. And as of your question, why don't more companies do it? Well, listen, I think the number one missing thing, and I think Al would attest to this, is the CFO and controller, they need to, sorry, I was looking at the wrong camera. They need to really understand how the numbers work. And my biggest failure point, you know, I went to a lot of classes on finance. I mean, I went to them, but it didn't make sense to me in the home service industry. So without having somebody crunching the numbers, and the biggest thing is I go into businesses every day. I really do. I've worked with a lot of people. I, I help out a lot of people. I don't have like a best practices group right now, but ultimately I go look at their CRM and it's not giving good data. They don't know their booking rate. They don't know their average ticket. They don't know their conversion rate. So they don't really have a good foundation because they don't have the metrics they need to make those decisions. And the data is not accurate. So the first thing you need to start at is how do you get the numbers to even know what to work on? And so that's the foundation is making sure you're getting data accuracy. And then the second thing is they say, I don't have time to do all this stuff because typically it's the owner is the smartest guy in the room. 
And he's got to be the guy doing all the numbers and coming up with everything because people hire people that are not as smart as them. They never want to say, I don't want this guy coming to work for me and taking my job or going out and starting his own thing. So they hire people that are a little bit less than them and they hire people typically that are a lot like them. So unlike me, I hire for my weaknesses of people way smarter and really good at that one thing. They're the best and they're very, very passionate about it. So if you ask me what small businesses do, they find people that really they they're a lot like them. Hey, I love marketing and sales too, but they they miss the numbers person because the numbers guy we don't get along with. He's boring. He sits in that room all day. What does he even do? But when you get the right person, they'll help you to get the decisions you need to make based on real data. And that's what I was missing. That's why I called Ellen and Al introduced me to Ellen and then I had Gail come out, her sister, and it was hard. Ellen didn't want to work with us because she didn't need to. She didn't want to do it anymore. And Al kind of pushed her into working with us. And she threatened to leave a couple of times because she's like, I'm not going to listen to you guys and your excuses. This needs to be fixed. And she worked with our uh, – it was an advanced bookkeeper at the time. And it's, I'll give him that. But um, the, we, we had the wrong people, the wrong seats. And uh, we had to top grade that position. And thank God Adam was a really, really good typer, really good with Excel. And Adam did a lot of that. Me, me and him used to get a six-pack and come up with a new compensation program. And we made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> it was trial and error. And we got really good at it through, through a lot of mistakes. What's your advice for people? On, uh, you mentioned something really important there, which is hire, a lot of business owners, and I've seen this myself, hiring people not smarter than they are. So I would describe it like this. There's a fear of not being the smartest guy in their room. It's not even a conscious fear. It operates sort of somewhere underneath their awareness. But if you look at the building and you look at the team, you can clearly see that they're the, you know, he or she is the smartest person there. And they're they're afraid to kind of like bring in that higher horsepower person when they really need it. And I think in traction or Gina Wickman calls it the the visionary with a thousand helpers. What have you found useful to just, did you ever have that fear? Did you have to get over it? Like what's, how do people just go, you know what? I don't actually need to have all the answers here. I'm going to hire this big gun and I'm, and I'm not going to be intimidated by them. I kind of accidentally met Adam. I mean, he was a friend of a friend and I didn't realize his capabilities, but he became my integrator and I didn't know what his bandwidth was, but it was really good. We called it the TNA show, Tommy and Adam. And you know, we'd read Rocket Fuel. I gave the book to Al. He read it. And I find that I'm a visionary and it's hard for me to integrate. So I needed great integrators. And after I met Adam, I said, I need more guys like Adam. Because what if I had three or four integrators that are really smart that could actually get stuff done? And Ken Goodrich came into my office one day and he talks to all my managers. And he said, Tommy, he said, do you mind if I say something to all your managers right now? And I go, sure, go ahead, Ken. He goes, you know, Tommy reads more books than anybody I've ever met. He's at every single show. He's educating. He's podcasting. He's got so much help. He's hired more people than anybody I know to come help him. He's growing at an exponential rate. And Tommy, if these guys are not willing to put in a 50-hour work, we can spend 20 hours on themselves to keep up with you. My best advice, and I want you guys all to know this, he said, I want you to fire them. He goes, because listen, you're going to grow out of these guys so quick and they're not going to keep up and they're going to hold you back. And he goes, do you understand, Tommy? And I looked at these guys and I was like, yeah, I guess. Thanks. Thanks, Ken. And then he calls me up later and says, was that too harsh? And I said, it was, it was the truth, 
but it was pretty harsh. <laughs> but those guys got a message is I got to start educating. I got to start learning more and I got to start implementing faster. And that's the culture we grew. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is people do have a real fear of this person could go steal my business. The, you've seen the stories of them walking out, the manager walking out with all the technicians and holding the company ransom. And they didn't have the legal paperwork in place. They didn't have non-competes. They didn't have a good non-disclosure agreement. They didn't have a manual in place that covers all these things. And when you're running the ship in the fear, that's the worst place to be of just wondering every night. Nobody could open my mail. Nobody could open my email. I can't share my numbers with anybody. Nobody could know where I live. I had 25 employees over in the last month. And, you know, Benji, I'm not trying to be conceited here, but the house is, you know, it's a 20,000 square foot house. It's a lot. And people say, never show people where you live. Never show them your new cars. They helped get me there. And I don't live in fear of what are they going to think because I want them all to own a house just like it and have seven rental houses. Mm. So I don't have, we have open book management. And Al said, everybody needs to know where your numbers are. You don't need to hide those anymore. And I, I feel like most owners are like, no one can know what I'm doing good because I always have a sob story. <laughs> yes. I go in, we're barely scraping by. I took all the risk. And they have this mentality like, I deserve all this. I took the risk. But why not share with everybody? Why not let everybody get ahead? Why not have them have a stake in the outcome? And that's what changed everything. It was a mindset shift. It's the Elevate mindset shift. Yeah, I think one of the things, one of the things that I could jump in for a second is Tommy believed always, though, you needed to have this, you know, willing person, you know, by this expensive person who we hope was willing, but they always oversold themselves. There was really no way to judge them. And that's why when I walked in, there were a lot of people filling a lot of boxes that they were totally inept to do. And that's what I shared with him is once you have the org chart and you define what goes on in the boxes and then have the measurements for it, then you can take willing people and build your own. So if somebody decides to walk out, I'll go have a good life. Next. And he had depth at all of these positions, which is really the goal here. And that's what we did is he helped me build. uh, Yeah, everybody's sort of a depth or an org chart. But talk about real quick, Al, when you taught me about the depth chart. Yeah, depth chart is, you know, if you're a fan of football, the center snaps the ball and gets hurt. What should we do? Stop the game? Somebody else has already cross-trained to come in and handle it. And that's pretty much everything. And when you have manuals and associated training, you know, in my case, you're primarily a CSR, but if need be – dispatchers on a smoke break or lunch, they could switch over and handle that for 15 minutes. Phone is overloaded, goes to the dispatcher, they can do that. So in our case, in my company, the more manuals you had access to, and the more you were trained, the more valuable you are. But, you know, I even work with owners where I always believe that an owner should be the marketing manager and the financial manager. Now, let me be clear about that. Marketing manager position doesn't have to create the campaigns. But if they're not good at it and being able to hold people accountable to what it is that, like if I ask Tommy, Tommy knows how many calls he needs and from who he needs those calls and by when, that is a marketing manager. And then he has the people that he can, when he hires somebody out there, he's already telling them specifically, here's what I want for this money. And this is how I'm going to be judging you. Most guys cannot do that. Yeah, and if you think about it, People walk in and they see the manual and it explains every single thing they're graded on, what their expectations are, what needs to be done by when. And then that coupled with the steps of delegation I learned from Al, you combine those two. Some people walk in and they're like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing for this company and how I'm being graded. 
when their wife asks them or their husband asks them, what is your core job? They go, well, I'm kind of in charge of everything. It just depends on what they need today. Mm. There's always things I get pulled into. Mm. How's somebody supposed to be successful when they can't define what success even looks like? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, as a quarterback, when you've progressed the ball, you score a touchdown. That's how a quarterback's judge. What is a center? I got to snap the ball and guard the quarterback. They're, each of those people have stats on the back of their football card. You can see exactly how they're rated. And that's, I love the analogy for sports. I do too. And who do you fire if somebody is not doing good? Let's say the Dallas Cowboys fail. Fire the coach. You fire all the coaches. You hire the head coach and the special teams coach, and you you literally – the players don't get fired. It's bad coaching. And most of the time, the owner and the managers don't want to look in the mirror. They don't want to say – they want all the glory. They want the Inc. 5000 awards. They want the best in class, but they don't want to accept. They say, I don't have good people. Nobody wants to listen. Nobody can do it like me. And that's the mentality they live in, and they don't take any responsibility that it's themselves. They don't look in the mirror. I've learned so much. It's like people are tired of hearing me kind of honk about football and, and using it as a microcosm for business. But unlike other sports, I would say football is the best one to look at because the roles are so incredibly defined. Basketball is a lot more fluid. The defenders also play some offense and the people who score also need to, you know, like it's, 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 it's hard to point. It's hard. It's hard to pinpoint what everyone exactly does. If you're a really, you know, avid watcher, but in football, even a passive watcher can see a running back, you know, receives the ball. They do the run through the O-line. They get in certain yardage. The wide receiver has a super defined role. The defense has a super defined role. Linebacker is is different than an edge rusher. And I've always loved, I've learned so much just about like organizational design from the way that football teams are structured. Um, and, I, and I find that, I just find that very, very useful. You're right. When someone is not doing, uh, if if a player legitimately can't uh, hit the stats that they're paid, they they get removed. They go, they go back to a farm team. They get traded to another team. It's a lot slower in the business world. A lot slower. And I wonder if you guys have a take on why that is. Exiting the wrong people seems to be a very bogged down process in this small business environment. Is it because the st- I mean, in the NFL the stakes are just too high and the money's too big and so they have to exit people quickly? Is there an is there an emotional component? I mean, what are your like when you see a shitty running back on, you know, name your team, they're out usually before the end of the season. You see a shitty office manager inside a garage door company, they could be there five years. So wh- well, why is it, why does it take I, so I gotta, long? I, I got something quick on this and I'll let Al answer it. Tom and I were smiling because we, we, you hit a topic that we both firmly believe there's a, a reason for what you spoke to. So I went and saw Larry Fitzgerald. I met him in person and he said, I worked with Warner, one of the best quarterbacks. And he said, Warner came up to him in the locker room and said, I'm never going to pass you again. He goes, you're the most talented guy on the field. You could catch anything, but I don't trust you. He goes, what do you mean you don't trust me? He goes, the play says 10 yards cut, you run eight. I don't know where you're going to be on the field. You're so talented, but until the day I could trust you. And the reason I bring this up is that changed Larry. Larry Fitzgerald said, I caught 10 times more great passes in practice than I did playing. And he learned they built trust. And the problem is with our management, we build a lot of trust and we say, if I lose this manager, then I'm back in the game. I got to go run that. So instead of being a talent scout and always looking for great people, we tend to say we'd be firefighters. Mm. And what happens is 
we bring back people we trust because we've been burned a lot. So this guy's, he's not great, but I know he's going to show up and at least me and Al used to always joke. If you could fog a mirror, you're hired because you're alive. And that was what most people's credentials are. Hey, do you show up for work? Are you sober? You're hired. And that's a mistake. But then again, you look at their culture and the trucks look like crap. The place is sloppy. When you build a, when you build the right place and it is the culture is there and the coffee machines and it's a fun place to work and it's lit up correctly, it becomes a magnet for great talent. So I think people feel trapped. They're like, number one, I, if I bring on another guy, I'm going to get set back 10 steps because now I got to retrain. I got to wait for him to get acclimated or her to get acclimated. And it's like the change cost is just too high for where they're at or what they're going through. They don't have more time to train. Mm. They don't have more time to onboard. They don't have more time to get this person caught up because they're, make, they're barely making a profit as it is. If I get rid of this guy, I'm ba- I might even be back in the field. Mm. I mean, that's a scary place to be. And I've been there where I had to go run jobs. I've been there at nights, weekends, holidays. A guy didn't show up for work. Adam said, get in the truck. I need you to run four calls. I was the best salesman, so I had to. And that's not a place you want to be as a business owner when you're forced working in the business every day if somebody doesn't show up. How do you keep yourself from getting – how do you keep yourself from being locked into that situation? So I'll ask this question to you, Al. Like how do you – because you're right. The reason they don't exit is because they're worried they're going to need to go fill the role. So what's the solution just to – always be scouting to always have your, your net, your next man up mentality. Like what's, what's the answer in the business context? We, we talked about depth chart. Yep. Before. That's exactly. Yeah. So there's the org chart and then you do a save as to that. And then where am I first, second, third string? Who's cross trained? Where am I weak? Where am I strong? Once you have manuals and training and systems, this becomes less of a problem. There isn't just a office manager. Someone else can have depth at that position, mm. but really it started for us years ago. You know, he he mentioned my brother, Marty, who was the inside guy the, for us. Fortunately, he was a financial guy. And uh, one day he just laughs at me and my brother, Richie, and he goes, the way we hire is called the mirror test. If you fog it, you're hired because we only hired out of desperation. We never did anything else. So, but when we finally awakened, we realized there are five steps to staffing, always recruiting, always hiring, always orienting, always training. And here's the one we miss. We think they're on the team forever, always retaining. retaining. Now, if you do the good job on the first four, you've got a higher chance. And if you can offer a career, not a job, which is what we did, we took willing people and really preferred you had no skills to train is easier to be what we wanted you to do. Then we're no longer a hostage to any employee. Let me say it again. We are no longer a hostage to any employee. So when I put the manuals years ago, it was in the 90s. Spent $150,000 in today's money. It's a fraction of what it, what it is today. I come up to my operations manager. His name is Mark. And I had already laid out the bullets pretty much for every job. And now I was just filling it in. And I asked Mark, so what's the procedure for this? And he goes, well, that depends. And then I asked him another thing. And he goes, well, you really can't define that. So finally, I put my pen down and I looked at Mark. And I go, Mark, you think your job is secure because of what you know? Let me tell you right now, you cross the street, bus hits you, bad for you and your family, but bad for me. So if you're going to hold me hostage, you might as well leave right now. I'll be in the same spot. Or you can understand this. Your value to this company is how you empower everyone else. That is how you secure your job. That is how you make more money. (laughs) And I will tell you, Mark gave it up, all of it. So as luck would have it, 
I think it was my second or third client, really great company, a next door company in Pennsylvania. And he's totally bought in on this. He knows this is what he needs. He was probably about seven, eight million, and now he's about 50 million in sales. And so I said, just be aware, this job security idea is going to happen. And he goes, oh, no, not here. We have a great culture. Calls me up a week later and he goes, hey, you won't believe this, but so-and-so is not giving it up. And I said, do you remember the speech? He goes, I absolutely do. I'll be calling you back. <laughs> and he gave him the same speech. Either get on board or go. Mm. Mm. I love this idea of a depth chart. Um, and it and it occurs to me that most businesses operate w without one. And I think that's that's what creates the hostage situation. Can we talk a little, we're going to shift gears here. Can we talk a little bit about just like what, what you're up to right now at A1, Tommy? I had a few questions from our listeners that I wanted to hit. So actually, you know what? Before we dive in, give us like the one minute summary, if maybe for somebody who's not familiar with, with your work in A1. What are you guys up to? Size, states, locations, revenue, employees, just so people kind of have some context here before I ask you these questions. Yeah, we've, we've uh, well... I'll tell you the story real quick. In um, last summer, one of the guys on my board, Tom Howard, came out. He said, how many deals do you got in the pipeline? I said, about 50 NDAs, about 10 LOIs about to be signed. He goes, what mechanism do you have to buy these companies? I said, I have a delayed draw term loan up to $30 million, but they want a 90-day seasoning period to buy one deal, look at the financials, make sure it went successful because integrations are difficult. And he said, so you've got more opportunity than you have the money for. And I said, yeah, he goes, this is one of the rarest times I've seen in home service where you're going to be able to get more than you're probably worth for the company. Mm. And so I decided that night we went home and watched the big short. And he said, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Do you want to grow 10x and own a piece of it? Or do you want to try to double in the next three years? And I said, I want the 10x. And I didn't really talk a lot about chips off the table, but that's one of the benefits. So I had the equity incentive program. We decided to get Cowan involved. We got the lawyers involved. We did a quality of earnings. We did a uh, audit by one of the big four. And then we did a study by Parthenon. And that was a study of the garage door industry about the market cap. And that was 600 grand. And then we did a process. We ended up getting a great partner, Cortec. I rolled half of my money. I still own half the company. And so that gave us enough money of unlimited cap that we could go buy companies. And little did we know that it's not easy to buy a company. I mean, they've got a different culture. Sometimes they overlap. So we had to build out a checklist, a standard operating procedure of what happens in marketing, what happens with the taxes, what happens with all of these different things. How do you regenerate business from what they already have? How do you retrain the technicians? How do you pivot that culture? And so we did that deal in January. Um, we've learned a lot. Every single acquisition we've done has been a learning process and it's getting better and better. And now I know how the big companies get way bigger because they build the processes. And we're in 19 states, 37 markets, uh, going on 800 employees. We're pacing. I got two deals that should get done this year, which will put us over 200 million. Um, but I'm most prideful and grateful for the fact that we started out at 17%. EBITDA, and now we're at 23. Whoa. And my team believes we could hit 30 in Q1, and we're on our way to 30. And uh, one of the things Al always says is revenues for vanity, profits for sanity. And so we really started focusing on profit. And we're, we got really good at reporting. 
I thought we were really smart. I thought I went in with a master's degree into this thing. I realized I was still in elementary school on the reporting aspect. And these guys are finding money behind every rock. They're like, your credit card processing, we're going to lower that fee and we're going to have you guys swipe every customer instead of manual enter it. There was 50 grand. Your recall burden rate, we just found 3 million. Your AR, it's at 2%. We're moving it to a half percent. There's another three and a half million of EBITDA. They literally, the financials and the things they look at because they said, here is our report we want. It's 50 pages. We need this to look identical. It took us 60 days. And it needed a lot of work. They said, but you cut on the fastest company. And because they were used to looking at the same set of KPIs for hundreds of companies throughout the years, they were able to circle the things that looked off and dig into them and find money. And they're still finding money every month. And, uh, you know, our goal is to be over $100 million in 2025 and probably do another deal in 2026. And I'll roll again. And then we'll do an IPO. Mm -hmm. Because I believe once you pass $300 million of EBITDA, that's the only place to go. But, the, you know, we're going to do over 100 in 2025 is the plan. And the economy is a little shaky, but I like it because it's going to turn into a buyer's market, more opportunity, sure. more time to grab market share. So what do you thank you for the summary? The, uh, Perfect. Yeah. Here, here's what people want to know. The decision making, the decision making matrix that you have for new market expansion. If you're looking at, you know, X city in Y state. What are you looking at demographically, economically, the talent pool, the zip codes? How do you make a decision? Yeah. And what's a green light? What's a red light? What's maybe a yellow light where it's like, ooh, this could be good, but I'm not sure. Walk us through kind of the analysis that happens there. So we have a lot of people now that do analysis. We don't have one or two. We have about 20. And some are on the Cortec team, some are on our team. And they said no more popsicle stands. Don't, you're not going into a market where you can't capture 15% and have at least 3 million of EBITDA. So yeah, that requires population. That requires garage doors. You can't be in like New York or Chicago where there's no garages. The outskirts, yes. And they said, what are markets? So we, we did a competitive analysis of about 100 markets. And they said, we want a top 20 list. We want to know which markets you're going to own, which ones you're going to have deep, deep depth in which markets you're going to be able to do TV, radio, billboards, and higher, higher, higher with the right leadership. So we narrowed it down to 20. We looked at Parthenon, the study of the garage doors, how many houses are going in, what the new construction's like, what the market looks like. We did a massive study of Google demand. How many people are searching for garage door repair? Who are the, the competitors there? Can we beat those competitors? And then we looked at what opportunities are there, and we basically got all this data and figured out what are the ages Who's going to be getting out? Who can we purchase? And, uh, you know, we don't purchase franchise companies. So, but there's places with franchises that we know we could beat. And so we got it down to 20. We're in 12 now. We're greenfielding into those. Then we're going to buy. And we decided a roll in, basically a roll up in that company, uh, in that market is a better opportunity because going into a market blind and just purchasing a company, is because then you got to change the EIN number, then you got to change the tax and you need a new contractor's license. And there's a lot that goes on. So it kind of sits there for 90 days while you're doing all that after the deal's done. But when you're rolling it in, it can move a lot faster. Hmm. So now we're just going to go in and take market share. There's an opportunity in another market and they're doing a significant, they own market share. We're going to look at that opportunity, but they wanted us to have a really detailed plan. They didn't want to, they have a board of LPs, the investors that they report to each week. And you can't say, hey, they're looking at anything and everything possible. They're going to go into any market. And so we want to go in and 
take, we want to make a lot more Phoenixes. So in Las Vegas, Denver, Houston, Detroit, and Milwaukee, those are our big five. Phoenix and Tucson are where we're going to see growth in those markets, but we already got a lot of market share. And then we're going to pick the next five markets that we're going to continue to grow. And when you add it all up, our plan is 30% growth organically and 30% through acquisitions per year. And compounded, that puts me at about $110 million in 2025. What's the marketing playbook in the first six months? If you roll up a company and it goes from Joe's garage doors to now A1, they may have heard of A1 because it's becoming a big brand, but the most like the local homeowner market probably doesn't know who you guys are and probably doesn't care. So what do you like like what are the levers you pull on the marketing front to establish brand awareness? What are you doing on the SEO pay-per-click front? Are is it billboards? Are you door knocking? Like how do you get brand presence in Milwaukee the first time you arrive there? Well, typically we do an analysis of their Google assets, LSA, PBC, GMB, and organic. It will, and then we got to know, is it going to be an A1 or are we going to buy a great brand and keep it that brand? Because there's 93 other A1s that had pre-established before our irrevocable trademark. So the naming of what we're going to call that market. And then we got to look at their assets. And typically we want it to be A1. We're going to do a 301 redirect to their website. We're going to rank number one within 30 days once Google scrapes that new page because of our domain ranking authority. Then we're going to build the GMB, get all the reviews we need and make sure that's optimized. Then we're going to make sure we're tripping the algorithm on LSA, which means we're answering that phone call in the first mm -hmm. ring, which makes us get the most, we're going to get the highest quality score. And then we do a reactivation campaign to every single client, letting them know that it's time for your tune-up and uh, we're a new company now. And then we retrain every single technician in CSR. So the, the core foundation starts with what's your average ticket conversion rate and what is your booking rate? And they're not open nights and weekends. They're closed on holidays. So that's a huge opportunity. The next thing is their ticket average is really horrible. So we fix that. So now we've got money to work with. Typically, I want to buy companies with a really, really low marketing. They've been there 40 years. They've got market penetration. They've got stickers. They don't spend a lot on marketing because they don't believe in Google. They just, their technicians are running eight calls a day. Our guys run three calls a day. So we got to go in there and hire a lot of people. And then basically, Typically, typically most companies that are doing roll-ups, they only see the arbitrage. If we put it under our foundation, we're going to get, we paid five for it. We get 10, we get that five times arbitrage. That's the difference. But when we go in and fix it, let's say we paid 5X and we're able to triple it. We really paid one and a half X. So that we, we find companies that we can basically pump steroids into. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in. In, in, in like, what what are the steroids that you pump? And what I think is really interesting you, is you you look for businesses that are weak on the marketing and brand front because that's where you guys feel you can add value. And I love what you said about the Google asset analysis. Where are they at on uh, on pay per click? Where where how's their organic search? Do they have LSAs set up? Probably in most cases they don't. So here's a question actually for Al, like on the operational systems front. Let's say there's a listener who's like super inspired by Tommy, and I I promise you there's thousands, and they don't own a garage door company, so don't worry. This I'm not I'm not training your competition here. Let's say they own a, a landscape maintenance business, junk removal, something else, and they're like, I really want to expand. When it comes to an operational manual standpoint, uh, 
how how does a business owner know when they're ready? How dialed in does that original ver- that V1 need to be before they go I'm a, I I I operate in Seattle. I think we're ready to go to Portland. You get what I'm saying? Like how tight do those manuals need to be? And is there anything that you can say about knowing when you're ready to make that leap? Yeah, no, this is something that I faced in my own business. We had a, one main hub and we had three spokes on an area called Long Island. And it wasn't geographic distance. It was drive time because drive time was killing us. So we operated a one hub and three spokes. And I can guarantee you, having worked with people for so long, most companies couldn't move across the street and operate the same way because it takes that magic owner stepping in or the management to step in all the time. But once you have a, the right box org chart and you have the manuals covered and the associated training of being able to take willing people uh, with no skills to willing. So ex- example is text, which is a big stumbling block. I can take a willing apprentice with no skills and make them a willing tech in as little as six months, and they'll be better than any tech you have. And so I can go into any market I want that way. Is Now, the part about it, it was, I happen to, when I do this, I like to establish what I call a beachhead, which is I would buy an established company because otherwise I have to go there, run a call, come back. Go there, run the call, come back. And if I buy a company and use that as a beachhead, there's a nucleus of calls, I convert them to my own, and then I worked two ends to the middle and I did everything that Tommy mentioned, because that's something we discussed back then is that every shop has to run the same. Work with a great electrician, Tommy knows, down in uh, Alabama, Tennessee. He had 10 shops, main one in one place in Huntsville. None of them ran the same. So we had to change that. Once you have these systems in place, that opens up the whole playbook to be able to do it right. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, do yourself a favor. Don't expand a block away. <laughs> yeah, and take market share in your current market. Don't expand unless you've got that market completely penetrated. A lot of people go, I want to do what you did. First thing I'm going to do is expand next month. Yeah. Mm. And I go, well, you must own your market. You must have every neighbor. You must really, you must just have tons of market share, be extremely profitable. Or I hear, listen, I got a great thing here. I'm going to franchise. I go, man, you must have great systems and you must be killing it in two other markets. And you must be like, multi tons of millions of dollars of EBITDA mm-hmm. and they're like, no, but that what I got works. And so many people think, man, if I get other people and just do what Tommy did. And Al reminded me the other day, Tommy, you had a, a salvage title, 200,000 mile beat up truck. You lived in an apartment. You were writing the checks from your personal account to make payroll. People say, I want what Tommy has, but they didn't go through near the pain that I had to go through. And I don't know what good is until I experienced really, really bad. And so it was a tough road. And I'll tell you, expansion is not necessarily the key unless you own your current. This is where your kids went to school. This is where you go to dinner every day. You can't own your current market. And I mean, own it. Be the biggest. Don't even think about expanding. I greenfield it a lot. And what I noticed is that's exactly what the PE guys said. They said, you got a lot of popsicle stands everywhere. Where You're only making money in like serious money in a few markets. You better figure out how to take penetrate those markets because you could bring a couple hundred thousand dollars everywhere. But why would you manage that? Right. Own your market. Yeah, that's very yeah, so interesting. When, when we open, when I open branches and I've helped other people open branches. And also, by the way, I, I created a franchise with one of my clients and also Ellen Rohr that is now nationwide Zoom train sewer service. And they're growing exponentially, but in a different model in that 
unlike a lot of franchises, you know, they give you a, a truck design and maybe a phone. Our, these franchises that I had, they had all of the seven systems, planning, operations, staffing, sales, sales coaching, marketing, finance. And all of it was proven at the main market in Philly. And then we had a spoke shop for them to prove it again, that it would be that way. And so when we opened up to other people, we could support them in a way that nobody else can. You have to be able to do apprentice to junior tech, junior tech to senior tech, senior tech to field supervisor the right way, which is not appointing somebody, qualify, compete, and train. And then you can export that person to your new market. And there's, with that, you have a much better chance of owning a spoke is what I call it, or opening up in a new market. Do you guys still think that the franchise model is a viable one for expansion? I'm going to give you a very hot take, and I want you to say I agree, I disagree, and if you, and if you disagree, dismantle my belief system here. It's been my observation over the last 10 years that I think franchisors are really str starting to struggle. And I think the re I mean there's exceptions to that rule, but uh, I know a lot of them and I think the and I think I think the reason that is is because the value prop that a franchisor offers to this kind of entrepreneur who maybe doesn't have the confidence to start themselves. So they're going to go and become a part of this larger brand where the systems are built for you and here's the business in the box. I think all the stuff that they offer are, is widely available on the open market. So if you look at the typical kind of like 90s franchise, what did they have? They had a brand that was built. They had some kind of CRM-ish thing that they created. They had centralized finance. They had centralized call center. Um, they had some SOPs and a few things in place. I feel like most of that stuff is really available to the entrepreneur out there at pretty low cost these days. What is your state on the current, where what's your thought on the current state of, of the franchise model as a way to grow your business? I'm going to take a first swing at it. I, I would say again, and yeah, maybe it's because it's my child, but I don't no longer own Zoom franchise. It is totally different than any other franchise because Ellen Rohr grew one of the great plumbing franchises. And I looked at it one day and we were friends. I said, you have a franchise that's a mile wide and an inch deep. He said, if I ever got into franchise, it'd be a mile wide and a mile deep. And so that it could work anywhere and everywhere. And that is not the case. I've been hired by a lot of franchisees. And I used to ask them, I said, well, you belong to a franchise. Why are you paying me? And they go, they give me a truck design help me make my phone ring. Not always. That's all they get. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say this. If you're going to be a franchise, McDonald's has a school. The owner must work in the school for two months. You must have a million dollars in the bank to open one franchise. You must be able to own three. So you have to have $3 million. You got to understand all the SOPs. If you don't have SOPs, training center, CRM, call center, literally, People want to buy a business in a box. Mm -hmm. They don't come to start their own business. And so many franchisors, they say, hey, I, I got a good deal with the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. I got a CRM. I, I made a couple of good companies. Uh, my first franchise worked out well. Right. And it happens to be a really good owner that took that franchise, and they did a lot of work. The franchise fails. So unless you've got a turnkey business and every single thing from A to Z, and that's where Al works his best. Because he can create a system that will work everywhere. I see so many franchises where you walk in and they don't feel like the same company. It's a different culture, different management style, different pay grades. Yeah. There are, I know franchises on two different CRMs. And that's the problem is they didn't do a great job. They said, hey, we're just going to franchise this. We're going to charge $25,000 a location, take 6%, and we're going to be living in the gravy lane. 
And that's just not the case. They screwed over everybody that got involved. And here's the other problem with franchises. Same thing I said earlier. I'll sell my franchises to anybody. I would never sell. One out of 50 people that applied would get that franchise. They need to be great operators, have a great experience. This is an investment for them. They need to be able to penetrate the locality of that market, be involved in the community, be involved in dinners, have a lot of people, have the fire team and, and the police officers there. Like if, and be involved in the BNI because I can't be at a BNI from Phoenix if it's in Chicago. So they need to be able to penetrate the density of that market. And so many people are like, man, if I sell 100 franchises at $25,000, that's $2.5 million, plus I got the reoccurring income. And they, it's a nightmare. It's worse than they ever predicted it would be because mm. now they're in the people business instead of the core what they started with. And then the franchise gives you a bad name because they're doing malicious stuff. One franchise gets a lawsuit that screws up every market. It's everyone. on national news. Thanks, everyone. Right. So yeah. I don't like the franchise. I, I, I will do franchises in the future. I don't like it for most companies because they haven't invested the time and energy to put in what really is a turnkey operation. Yeah. The training, the recruiting, the marketing, the call center, the dispatch, the tech, you know, all of these all things. Of all of it. And having the you know, right amount of coaches per how many you manage. Right. You know, there's a lot of places. So speaking to the franchisee and franchisor, you know, there's this myth about one man in a truck, it'll be you and me. <laughs> if you've ever been a solo entrepreneur contractor, that means you get to work all day and you have your phone like this and you're answering calls while you're trying to fix something. And when you get home, you got the pleasure of doing your books. Mm -hmm. That is a life of misery. <laughs> so when I put together the franchise, we said, no. You come out with two of the really specific trucks. This is how we do it, or you don't eat, don't bother. You're not you're not welcome here. We're almost out of time. You guys have an event coming up that I want you to tell our listeners about. Uh, I believe it's called Freedom. When is it? Where is it? What's going on? Tell tell the people. So Al's going to be there. Uh, we've got amazing people. Aaron Gaynor's going to be there. I learned everything I learned about promotions from Darius Livers, uh, which is financing. I, basically, I'm pulling in Dan Antonelli. I, I'm pulling in everybody that helped me come to, to where I am today. And that was one of the biggest reasons I'm here. And what does freedom mean to you? To me, it means I get to help everybody that's helped me. It means to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, and be a master of one craft and hire everybody around me that's really great. And it means that I'm building a business that's worth a lot of money. And nobody knows what's going like a process. Like I've been through it. I lost hair through the process. I had to do all the hard things. I think people want to understand what their life looks like when they become a $100 million business. And that's what we're there to help with. So it's in Orlando, November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. I'm having the best people. This isn't some philosophical meeting about a bunch of stories about how I went, you know, from broke to, to millionaire. This is tactical, systematic operational excellence of what you're going to get to become a huge company. I like watching businesses win, make a lot of money and build a lot. I want to change family trees and I, I insist on changing the lives of the employees. So that's what this is about. It's called the freedom event, freedomevent.com. And what I did, Benji, is we created a code because your listeners are amazing. The people you guys work with breakthrough Academy. We love you guys. Al actually knows Danny really well. Yeah, yeah. So we just set it up a code. If you guys put BTA 40, it gives you 40% off. It's not expensive. If you don't like the event and don't get your value times 10, you, you text me. I'll give you your money back. I do, this isn't a big sales pitch. This isn't something where 
I want businesses to show up and get you in some stupid funnel. I want to see you win. I want to change lives. We've already created hundreds of millionaires. We want to create millions of millionaires. And this is the foundation of it. It's true freedom. And I think you're going to change the way you look at business and the way you operate on a day-to-day basis. And Al's putting it all out there. I'm putting it all out there. And the people I have showing up here is going to change your life, your outlook, your family's life, and the people that your coworkers, the most important part, the people that are helping bringing you to this state of freedom. Okay. We're going to link no, that. We, we, Tommy, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Al. Yeah. What I said, when Tommy told me first about this event, I said, you know, there are just a ton of events and, you know, you go home with a notebook full of to-dos and good ideas and you've heard great speakers and I'm not diminishing that. Hey, I've been on the stage. I hope I've shared some good ideas. But the reality is if I could go home with systems and access to your network, as Tommy says, network is your net worth. All of this is not an expense. It is an investment in yourself and your company. And this is big forever. That's how life-changing. This is not like any other event you're ever going to attend. We will link this in the description. I can wholeheartedly give my endorsement to both of you two in this event. Freedomevent.com, BTA40. Uh, I'll put all that in the description. I love it. I love what you guys are up to. Tommy, there's one There's one thing in the book. Uh, I think this is a good closing note. As, it, as I read it, I'd sort of this seems like it's a mantra of yours. You say... And I know you say this in the office, you say it to your team, you probably say it to yourself when you have quiet moments in your mind. We're the best we've ever been and the worst will ever and the worst will ever be. What what does that mean to you? There's two things in the book. I'll talk about that one in a second, but I say build a dream so big that everyone that works with you, their dream comes true as well. Build a dream so big everybody else's fits in it. And make sure you're focused on their dreams, their goals, and what they want. But I'm the best I've ever been. I mean, today is the best day I've ever been at business. I've learned so much and I've read so much and I've worked with guys like Al. It's the best I've ever been. I'm in great shape, but tomorrow I know I'm going to be, I got a big workout later. I'm on the right. I haven't been drinking. It's been 90 days since I drank. I'm literally eating right. Tomorrow I'm going to be 1% better. I'm going to continue to educate myself. I'm going to focus. I'm going to get the education I need. And tomorrow I'm going to be a little bit better. So the best I've ever been is today, but tomorrow I'll be better. So best I've ever been, worst I'll ever be. It's a, it's a, it's a great mantra and a great little thing to implant in our brains. Uh, gentlemen, I, I thank both of you for your time. Uh, can't wait for freedom. Let's do this again soon. Thank you so, thank much. You so much. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it.